für so einen Podcast. The idea to cross the ape man with the Anunnaki. Slaves work animals created for one person to unburden the gods. The last uh, episode, a fortnight ago for those who remember, um, we were talking about, well we started with geography, but we ended up talking about mythology and specifically we were in the midst of the story of the Titans and the Olympian gods. So I'll just recap very, very quickly uh, for those who may have uh, forgotten in the meantime. Um, we have these sort of two groups of gods who are called uh, the Titans, who were the older generation, and the next generation of gods were called the Olympians, and they were named after the mountain which they decided to uh, uh, go to, um, which was Mount Olympus, the famous mountain in Greek, Greece. And so, before the Olympian gods, there was this uh, mighty god who was called Cronus, who was actually born to uh, the older gods from before, and he slew his uh, father and sort of seized control. Um, and following that, he, uh, along with his spouses, I can't remember how many, but uh, his, uh, I can't remember the name, I'm sorry, but along with his spouse, he gave birth to all of the Greek gods that we know, uh, the youngest being Zeus, and that's when the thing sort of started to shift. Cronus became somewhat unhinged and was uh, starting to create monsters and gods. And oh, welcome everyone. Sorry, yes, I uh, Gabriel. Uh, Hera was no Hera wasn't with the original, if I'm not mistaken. The um, I can't remember whose daughter she was. I believe she was. Zeus's daughter? I actually can't remember. I'm not as <laughs> on top of all of the Greek names, but we'll stay specifically for the story of the Titans. And Cronus ate uh, all of his children and attempted to eat uh, Zeus. His mother hid him in blankets. and Sorry, she took him and she hid him away and she covered a stone in blankets and gave that to Cronus instead, who didn't notice the difference, swallowed it, and then uh, vomited it up and along with the other children. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that that's where we uh, got to in the tale last week. And so this week, uh, just a general reminder, we're going to carry on with that story from where we stopped, and then we're going to move on to the Hindu Valley, and there we're going to talk a little bit about the gods and their stories. Again, we're not going to get very far deep uh, into it. And uh, we're just going to glean what we need to see the similarities between all of these stories. And hopefully, depending on our time, if we have enough time, we will actually get to the uh, original Sumerian uh, tale, which seems to have been the uh, the origin for all of these later uh, mythologies, uh, specifically concerning olden gods and the older generation battling the younger generation of the gods. And so, 
as we said, that Zeus uh, escaped Cronus's uh, sort of um, attempt to swallow him whole. And just a quick reminder, the reason Cronus wanted to swallow all of his children was because there was a prophecy that he was going to be uh, killed by one of his uh, children, by his own son. And so to escape his fate, he tried to uh, eat uh, his children. And so Zeus escaped as a baby and he grew and there are lots of stories about uh, what he was doing as well. Um, but he eventually grew to be a, uh, an adult and turned to uh, political affairs. And as is often the case with these gods, um, sort of started uh, gazing towards the crown and ruling as the supreme uh, deity. And in fact, as his father had done before him, to challenge his father and to um, join uh, this war. And so the war, to remind you, had been going on already uh, before Zeus, as it were, joined. Um, and it's told that it would have been waging for 10 years between the younger and the older gods. Um, again, just a reminder, the term gods that we're using is for these beings. And specifically in this Greek legend, there is a differentiation between the gods and the titans. So uh, we'll get to that later. But... Zeus, seeing this battle that was, uh, this, this war that was going on, saw it as an opportunity and decided to join. And the first thing that he did was he went and freed the uh, terrible monsters that Kronos had uh, captured and imprisoned away. Um, I, I think I mistakenly said Kronos before, sorry. Kronos's father, Zeus's grandfather, Uranus, was the one who had birthed the monsters and Cronus had imprisoned them in order to uh, battle them and to save uh, himself and the other titans. And so now the third generation, Zeus, uh, first went and set free these uh, monsters and these uh, abominations that Cronus, had fa his father, had imprisoned. And upon doing that, obviously, he spoke to the Cyclopses and explained his deal. And the Cyclopses, these uh, famous beings, gave him what's known as divine weapons. And so this is, again, one of those terms of similarities that keeps coming up again and again, whether in the Sumerian tales, the Egyptian tales, of course, now in the Greek tales, these divine weapons. And the translation that Sitchin uses is uh, the thunder, the radiating thunderbolt, and the lightning. Those were the weapons that the Cyclopses gave uh, Zeus. Hades, his brother, got a magic helmet, and Poseidon received his magical trident. And so these symbols, we're going to come back to them again later. But for now, um, obviously the Cyclopses are indebted to Zeus and upon hearing his claim for the throne, they uh, tell him that they will gladly join to uh, rid Kronos. And so what follows? Yes, yeah, sorry, uh, <laughs> not just any helmet. It was a magic helmet that made its wearer invisible. And this is sort of also the um, pinnacle moment where the three... I think most famous sort of items, the trident of Poseidon and the thunderbolts of Zeus are mentioned uh, when they were first given. 
And this again seems to be a theme that we see. So there was a huge battle that followed and it's very clear that um, it was very important for Hesiod, the Greek who is telling this story, to emphasize how global it was and that it was raging through the sea and through the earth and in the air and all across uh, the world and it said uh, the heavy quaking reached even far Tartarus which is this uh, distant planet. So a huge battle that ends up with uh, Zeus actually facing uh, his father Cronus. And so as Zeus battles throughout uh, this war and, 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 you know, doing all of the damage that he does, that eventually culminates in this grand epic uh, battle. And in this battle, we are actually introduced to a monster that, uh, well, it's not actually clear yet, but there is another uh, deity that joins. And this deity is called uh, Typhus in Greek, uh, Typhon in uh, Egyptian, from what uh, I recall. And it was this being that challenges used to his uh, claiming of the throne. And so it's mentioned that Typhon was so strong and he grew to an enormous size. He had a hundred heads of snakes and uh, that he was a dragon and all of these descriptions of real monstrous things and that he would surely have won uh, had it not been for the, uh, the sorry, what were they called? But the aiders of Zeus, the other um, gods who had tricked Typhon into drinking a, a regular human's uh, drink when, instead of the god's ambrosia that he thought. And upon drinking this, um, Typhoid actually, Typhus, sorry, <laughs> Typhus lost his strength and Zeus was able to defeat him in battle. Okay, Whew. so that's more or less uh, the general story. Obviously, there's a lot more details that the Greek go into. Um, but I want us to focus because it's easy to get lost into each one of these cultures and each one of these uh, giant pantheon and all the different names. But we're trying to, again, glean all of the similarities and try and see the, the connecting thread that appears through all of it. And so what has become clear uh, to our researchers as well and really to the Greek historians who were later, um, was this very clear connection between the Greek culture and the Greek uh, pantheon and the Egyptian pantheon and culture. And in fact, they uh, were coexisting at the same time. Uh, Egypt was before, but at the time that the Greek empire was there, Egypt was still uh, flourishing as it, well, towards the end, but they had a lot of their historians and there seems to be a, a lot of agreement amongst the Greek scholars that the stories, the mythologies, and even the titles and the names of the gods were actually borrowed or taken from uh, the Egyptian culture. So, 
that is more or less the Greek story. Um, and let's see if we will carry on. Hang on, I can just see there's a few things in chat. Um, oh, congratulations, uh, Fearless, right? That's uh, yes. Oh, well done. Um, okay, so I will carry on. I think we're okay here. The next story that we're going to talk about, uh, for me personally, I think, is even more uh, confusing because of the names. It's the story from the Hindu Valley. Now, as I keep mentioning, there's just so much information, um, so much research that has been put into the uh, ancient Indo-European culture. And in fact, it was the language of Sanskrit as a a proto-European language, a language that was one of the earliest languages to evolve into uh, Indo-European languages, including the Germanic languages, that was the one of the big sparks. Sorry, that was one of the big sparks that encouraged researchers, and especially uh, in the 18th century, I believe, uh, a lot of German poets and uh, writers uh, were researching and translating a lot of texts that up until that point were uh, only available in Sanskrit. And what they discovered, as was rather interesting and still is, is, as I'm sure you can guess, that um, a lot of these stories seem to be, again, very similar to a lot of these stories that we've been hearing about from other cultures and specifically the Mesopotamian uh, mythologies. And so with the Hindu Valley, with the uh, Indo-European culture, we well, let's just call them by the name that they're given, the Aryan culture, as many of us I'm sure have heard. Um, this very uh, mysterious people who seem to have just migrated from the uh, west, from the north, and arrived at this place and turned it into a flourishing empire that really, almost until today, is still uh, an impressive organization. And with these Aryans came uh, these sacred texts, which in Hindu are called uh, the Vedas. And these Vedas are really the basis as it were, of the entire, the, the Hindu tradition. So all of the Hindu tradition and the oral and practices and everything that we know is in some way based and comes from these sacred Vedas. Now, as is often the case with these things, the Hindu tradition is that the texts are not of human origin and they were composed by the gods, by their gods. Now, I think one of the most fascinating things for me about the Vedas, uh, in comparison to, let's say, the Anunnaki tales or even the Greek tales, they seem to be the most, I should, how should I put it, like technical and understanding descriptions of these gods. And so if in the Greek texts it seems that there's a lot of poetry um, in an attempt to describe the technologies and specifically the weaponry with the uh, Hinduist you seem they seem to be a lot more focused on the technological side the scientific side sort of expressing much less um, astonishment as it were 
as much as an understanding of uh, uh, how factual these things were, the fact that the gods had vehicles that could fly them through the sky at great speeds. Um, I'm just saying that as my own personal thought, but it's something that I have seemed to have noticed again from the translations, that whenever gods are perceived in a lot of the other cultures, they have this air of mystery, mythology, uh, magic. And with a lot of the Hindu description of the gods, they have their magic and their mystery, but alongside that, they seem to have this technology with an understanding of a sort of factual scientific side to it. So it's interesting, again, to see these different points of view, to compare and contrast them, and to see if there are any uh, threads that are connecting what we can actually learn from them. And so the Vedas are a vast uh, collection of texts that I honestly don't know much about the different parts. And for us, it really doesn't matter because we're going to jump right into it. And so the Hindu uh, tradition really does tell of a time before the gods, a time before the people, um, a time before uh, really the existence and the beings that we know was around and the time where it was first the heavenly bodies, the celestial bodies, the stars. And we can see again this similarity and emphasis on a time before humans were around, a time before the earth was as it was. Um, so there's a lot of similarities in the cosmology and the genesis of uh, planet earth um, between the Hindu text, the Sumerian text, etc. So again, an interesting point, but we will move on because there are lots and lots and lots of these uh, Hindu names that I'm trying to avoid as much as possible. But the two names that after a long time I managed to remember for this episode were um, the Adities and the Asuras. I think it's Asura and not Ashura. I'm not sure about my pronunciation, but it's A-S-U-R-A, -A, Asura. Um, I apologize if uh, that's a mistake. So these um, two groups, as it were, were born to an older uh, goddess, I believe that it's uh, the goddess who begot, who was named uh, Kasyapa. And again, as is often the case, um, Kasyapa gave birth to many gods, many giants, and many monstrous offsprings. So we have this similarity again. Now, of the two groups that were born, the Adityas um, will mention just a few of them, hoping that uh, some of them will be familiar. Amongst them were Vishnu and Rudra, uh, Tvashtri and Indra. And so if you've never heard of these names, don't worry about it. But these are sort of the more common, uh, well-known in today's texts uh, um, deities. And so for us, if we're going to compare it for a minute, these would be the Olympian gods. Yes, the Zeuses and the Poseidons, as it were. And on the opposite side, as it were, were the Asuras. And the Asuras, it is told, were again um, gods just like uh, the Adities. Um, but with time, uh, since they were sort of uh, at tension with the Adityas, and so 
the Asuras believed that they were the rightful heirs, as it were, of uh, control. And with the Hindu version, it's uh, conquering the earth and uh, controlling the earth. And as is often the case in these instances, the Asuras believed that they should be getting more uh, and decided to go to battle, to battle with the Adityas. And so there's a lot of, not battle, sorry, uh, to war. There's a lot of uh, uh, different tales. Oh, thank you very much, Gabriel. Yes, Archangel Gabriel, right? I, yeah. Um, so there's many, many different battles. And again, these share so much similarity with the Greek tales, battles over uh, attractive wives who are uh, kidnapped and taken and then fought over. Um, you know, various instances of assault and rape and um, all of these things that we have seen that seem to be part of the gods' uh, commonplace behavior, at least at this time uh, in history, uh, if not later. And so, as was the case again, um, the this battle wages on for a long, long time, and at one point, the Asuras are, uh, are winning and they defeat the Adityas. And then there's this whole tale of how they uh, decide to uh, win their way back. Until eventually, um, we'll skip to what we're talking about here. There is described a time when the Earth seems to have suffered... Um, from changes in climate, from having less food available, having less uh, water. And in, the in this time, what uh, once was uh, uh, plentiful bounty for everyone, uh, now the gods were sort of in a difficult position. And the reason I mentioned that just before uh, we continue is that the Hindu gods, the Adityas, were drinking Soma, in order to survive uh, this this difficult time. And so I'm just going to take a few minutes to very quickly uh, describe Soma as best I can. If you've never heard of it at all, um, it is an interesting subject. There's a lot of discuss, uh, people discuss uh, what it actually was, whether it was a concoction, a certain kind of plant or a mushroom, etc., etc., but in the descriptions, it was this very spiritual uh, and important uh, uh, drink um, of some kind that the gods were, would partake in in order to guarantee their immortality. And so that's all we really need to know. I'm just mentioning it here as it was part of it. We'll get back to it later. Now, we come to our... Uh, hero, as it were, of the story. And during this war, throughout the battles, there is one god who is mentioned, who was Indra, um, one of the Adityas. And he killed lots of the Asuras, and he was again flying through the sky with his uh, chariot and uh, firing missiles at the uh, gods, the Asuras down below, and going from victory in victory. Again, very, very similar to the Greek story, 
And if you remember from last week, uh, very, very similar to the Egyptian story when Horus took to the sky and was defeating the enemy. So I'm not going to bore you with <laughs> all of these long quotes, but again, we can see the similarities of the story. And once again, um, the battle continues. It gets difficult. The Asuras take on uh, the charge. Uh, they, they take on the lead, and eventually um, the the Aditya gods decide to consult one of their gods who is with them, Agni, and they devise this uh, pincer move, and then um, they manage to win that uh, battle. And at the end of that war, or in one of the periods of peace, as this was going on enough for a long time, um, Indra is claiming the supremacy again. And interestingly enough, just a side note, one of the uh, first things that Indra does once he seizes control is he goes and slays his own father. And I, uh, Sitchin doesn't actually go into the details of why that happened, uh, just mentions that the Rig Veda asks Indra, uh, who made thy mother a window, uh, widow, sorry, uh, rhetorically. And so we see again all of these similarities. Um, as punishment, Indra is uh, excluded from drinking the Soma, and they ascend up to heaven apparently to escape him. Oh, uh-oh, can you hear me now? Is everything okay? If uh, there are problems, please let me know. Otherwise, I will continue as it were. Um, hang on. Is that my... Okay. Excellent. Sorry about that. I just wasn't sure. So, uh, Indra, as the uh, other gods go up to heaven to escape, he uh, chases after them, raises his thunder weapon again, and the gods in fear tell him that they will agree for him to uh, have the Soma and he doesn't have to shoot. So we're seeing all of these details again, uh, all of these similarities coming from uh, the different stories, the Greek Olympians and the Hindu traditions. And once again, it uh, culminates in this giant uh, battle between Indra and the demon god, uh, Vritra, if I uh, am pronouncing that correctly. And, okay, so that is the final barrow battle. We're actually not going to talk about the battle right now because uh, we're going to quote, uh, read the quote from it in a later period. But for now, let's see, how are we doing for time? Oh, excellent, 10.30. Okay, so let's look at this very quickly we see a lot of similarities popping up all over the place. And if we just take these three um, uh, stories, and in fact, the last two, the Greek and the uh, Hindu stories, um, we can already see so many things that are in common. So we can start with the sky chariots. And again, this is the, the Egyptian tale as well. It seems very clear that the ancient people could tell the difference between a boat, a vehicle, which was going on the sea, even though this was uh, some of these things were before seafaring technology, um, a vehicle of some kind that would go on the land, 
or as it were, and uh, people walking, and a vehicle they could take to the sky. And I think one of the clear reasons we can tell the difference is because some vehicles, and in the description of the Hindus, were able to go from the sky into the sea. And in fact, when we see that these battles were uh, being fought, they were being fought on all three planes. Um, the second point is these missile weapons. And if we see the paintings and the pictures uh, of some of these uh, Greek and Hindu uh, mythology, mythological figures, we can see the weapons that they're holding or the instruments that they're holding uh, seem very reminiscent of some kind of missile, projectile. Um, and again, this use of the same metaphor of a lightning bolt being shot um, from a distance, usually from air. So, again, we can see lots of things that are repeated over and over in these very, very distant uh, cultures. The, the sexual behavior of the gods, the misdeeds, the wars that were being fought over the heroines of the stories, and the wars that ultimately always spilled over between the gods and the humans. So, we haven't spoken about it here, the titans and the gods were much, much earlier. But later on, um, both in the Greek mythology and, of course, in the Hindu mythology, the gods fought alongside men, recruited men, um, yeah, persuaded men to go to war, etc., etc. And in fact, we see that very much in Mesopotamian mythologies as well. The next point that I just want to point out before we move on is I spoke about Soma. And for those who are uh, who know already, there is an equivalent to Soma, as it were, in the Greek mythology, which was the ambrosia, the nectar of the gods. And the ambrosia was not just very sweet-tasting um, drink, but it was a divine drink. And indeed, in much the same way that it was used in the battles in the Hindu tradition, um, upon freeing the Cyclopses, Zeus gave them all uh, ambrosia to drink, and they were then sort of strengthened and able to go into battle. Now, we won't continue with Soma or ambrosia much here, since uh, Sitchin also doesn't talk about it as much. Uh, we will be getting into it as it has a lot to do with the eternal life, the search for immortality, and the pyramids in uh, Egypt, along with some other, other megalithic uh, structures. But for now, we are going to continue. Let's see. Okay, I am glad. I think we're going to be just right with the uh, timing this week. Excellent. So, where does that leave us all? What does all of this have to do with any of the Sumerian uh, history that we were going over? Well, at this point, we're actually going to go further back in time. But don't worry, this will all, I hope, <laughs> make a lot more sense once we move forward. And so now we're going to go right back to the beginning long before any of this took place, long before the Anunnaki even reached uh, Earth. And if you'll recall from one of the first, first episodes, um, before any of this started, there were the gods who were on Nibiru. 
and the gods who are Nibiru had a king and the king was named Alalu. Uh, I believe the Sumerian is actually Alalum and that name comes to us from I think the Assyrian but Alalu, Alalum, close enough for us to recall. Alalu was the king and Anu, as some of you may remember, was his cup bearer. And so later on, Anu became king, and the way he became king, he uh, challenged Alalu to battle and won the uh, wrestling match, which was the way that they uh, decided upon it. And Anu became king, and Alalu was expelled. And this, in fact, started our whole story back then of why Alalu came to earth and what followed from there. So why are we talking about all this and what does it have to do with anything else? Well, after Alalu came to earth, we sort of don't hear about him much. There's so much going on with Enki and Enlil and all of their projects. And once humans are created, as it were, um, it's very clear that we have a lot to go through. But Alalu seems to have carried on playing a part, or his part, in the story. And in fact, this seems to be the earlier allusion to the titans and the wars between the gods, the elders and the later ones. And so we're going to look further back to when Anu actually uh, came to earth. And so, if you recall, um, at the time, in the beginning, um, Enlil and Enki were in dispute, as it were, over who is going to rule, uh, uh, command the Earth um, project, the Earth, you know, uh, mission. And so, to decide between all of this and to make it clear that who is uh, the rightful uh, commander, um, Anu decides to come to Earth. And this is, in fact, the first time uh, that he comes to Earth and he draws a lot, as it were. The three of them draw a lot. Uh, it's not entirely sh clear uh, how this is decided. It's presented as if Anu was willing to risk his kingship on Nibiru and, as it were, placed it as well uh, in the cards. The For those who don't recall, if I haven't, uh, it's been a while since, so I'll just go over very quickly. There were three kingdoms, as it were, to rule over. Nibiru, which was king of all the Anunnaki, um, the mission control on Earth, which was running the show here, and then there was the Abzu, in uh, the southern part of Africa, which was overseeing the mining operations. And as luck would have it, or not, uh, um, Anu was given control of Nibiru, and he went up uh, back to Nibiru. Um, Enlil, as we know, was given um, the command over Earth and the uh, mission control. And Enki, as the scientist was charged with overseeing um, the operations in the Abzu in the southern part of Africa. And then we sort of continue with the tale and with what happened with Enki and Enlil and everything we heard. But 
Anu went up to heaven, and in there we get a very curious finding again. And so this story actually comes to us from the Hittites, which were another very mysterious culture that no one believed actually existed until we found some evidence. But it was here that a strange tale is told of uh, Anu going up back to heaven, back to Nibiru. And it says that as he entered his uh, spaceship uh, to go back, he found on the spaceship a, an Anunnaki, as it were, who was named Kumarbi. Kumarbi. Not sure how you pronounce that again, but... Now, this Kumarbi, who was uh, Anu's uh, cup-bearer, was in fact Alalu's grandson. And so it's very strange how these things seem to even willfully be repeated again and again. But it is said that Anu attempted to appease Kumarbi by allowing him to be his cup-bearer, a title of great prestige, obviously. But as the years went by and Alalu's name was obviously uh, forgotten and Anu and his children were taking over both the operation on Earth and on Nibiru, um, Kumarbi felt that it was his uh, rightful position to be the ruler as the son of the former king. And so as Anu entered his spaceship to go back to Nibiru, uh, that is when uh, Kumabi actually uh, confronts him and the text isn't quoted but harsh words are said towards him and a battle between Anu and Kumabi ensues. And as they are fighting and as they uh, usually do wrestling, we see again that Kumabi manages to grab Anu by his feet and bite between his knees hurting Anu in his manhood. So, another resemblance to the battle between uh, Zeus and Kronos. And so, as the battle continues, it seems that uh, Anu is injured and cannot continue. And so, he leaves Kumabi with the astronauts who are um, in orbit and takes off to another uh, spaceship. Now it's not clear at this point how Anu managed to get away but it is presumed that as Kumabi challenged him uh, he agreed to the challenge and fought but once he saw that he was badly wounded and obviously disgraced he sort of you know uh, backed away and had his guards uh, take Kumabi and station him with the astronauts. Now before he departed it says that Anu put on Kumabi a curse of three monsters in his belly. And so again, we can see another similarity. Uh, first the castration, castration, sorry, and then the swallowing of sons, as it were, of monsters. And so this marks uh, for Sitchin a point which is really in my mind, um, the reason that so many of these cultures have decided to record these events that were taking place before humans that were seen as so important and in fact um, affected 
the situation on Earth so much hereafter. And that is that this seems to be the point in time uh, Kumabi as a image, as a symbol of the newer generation challenging the old. And so the first story that we hear of this is obviously Anu challenging Alalu, um, his uh, older generation. And then from that moment, we see every new generation of uh, gods who are born um, eventually challenging the older generation. And this seems to have been a momentous occasion in history where at one Well, it's not really at one point, because in all of the tales, this was a war. And a war that was waging between 10 years and 100 years, and maybe even a 1,000 years, depending on whose description we read. But this was a very long period of time, where the war was both made of battles between the gods, between the aerial uh, weaponry that they had. But at the same time, And perhaps even more importantly, it seems to symbolize a change in the way of thinking of the gods. And, okay, we have exactly 15 minutes, so I think that should be perfect. Next week, we're going to continue a little bit more. But for now, I want to make one final point with the last few minutes that I have. It seems to me... At least, and again, this is uh, very much my uh, personal thought. But as these wars were waging, um, as we have seen in our own lifetimes, there seems to be a challenging of the older generation. And if we look back at the beginning of the stories of the Anunnaki, if we examine both the role of Enki and the role of Enlil, we see them as uh, seeing themselves very, very distant from humans, from Earth. They absolutely feel alien, feel that their home is Nibiru, is a distant, faraway planet, and are constantly working under the assumption that this is temporary, that the fact that we are here now doing this is a temporary fix And we are working towards a goal of leaving Earth. However that may be, I'm sure we're not thinking about the specifics. But there's this hope and dream that this is all going to come to an end and we get to go back home in the end. And that was true for the gods who came from Nibiru and the gods who knew the other life uh, on Nibiru. But as they stayed here longer and longer and indeed biologically changed to the earth cycles the newer the next generation of gods who were born no longer had that perspective and so they didn't view nibiru as a home a home away from home they viewed it as an alien planet since they had never been and since they weren't around for the creation of man and seeing the evolutionary process, which I'm sure even for Enki must have shaped the way that he viewed his creation, in fact, these newer gods no longer or never really saw humans as 
a subspecies in that sense. Certainly they weren't gods, but in terms of the uh, promiscuity, the availability, the sexual activities, and indeed taking these uh, human uh, females to be wives, it seems that this new generation of gods had a very, very different perspective about Earth and indeed about uh, humans. And this seems to have led to a shift in the consciousness at that time. And I'm not going to go too deep into it this time because we're already coming close to the end. But that shift in consciousness is, I think, what really allowed um, the wars that ensued to occur. Because it was only once the next generation of gods viewed Earth not only as a mission, not only as uh, a, a way to gain status, as perhaps Enlil or Enkis viewed it, but indeed as the throne itself, as the goal. And so now it's seen that controlling Earth, gaining uh, the supremacy amongst the other gods and indeed winning this challenge and this battle between the two sides is suddenly given much, much more importance in the eyes of these newer gods. And so suddenly shifting their focus and their attention from sifting and mining the gold, shipping it back to Nibiru, which was really the only reason they were here in the first place, um, just for that point alone, now it's become life ambitions, uh, attempting to control more land, uh, attempting con to control different buildings and different strategic places in the land. Um, and this all builds up to what we see as the big period of war that was going on between these two factions. And in fact, this is such an important part of our history, uh, in my mind at least, that the culmination of this war, the culmination of these, um, as it were, crusades or missions that they were, the gods were leading to conquer new lands, um, the culmination was devastating enough for it to really sort of ripple through time and through texts, as we'll get to it, we'll see. And that, in fact, will be the final uh, note from our Sikchin uh, segment. And so as we're building up to it, I keep saying that I'm not sure how many episodes because I'm not always 100% sure about uh, the timeline and how long we get there. But um, we're going to be building up towards the end of this warring period over the next few episodes. And then we will be moving on to Drunvalo Melchizedek, whom I'm already very excited uh, to get into. I hope you are as well. Okay, but I think for me, let's see, yeah, tend to. We're going to stop here for now because I don't want to go into anything else uh, at the moment. So, next week, uh, well, all things, uh, hopefully I will have everything ready. The stream, uh, yeah, we'll see when we deal with that. I'll be 
hopefully up and running in time, but uh, everything should be going smoothly by then. And so, if it does, uh, next week we're basically going to wrap up everything that we've talked about now. And so, we're going to re-examine the story between uh, Horus and Set, uh, that first initial Egyptian battle that we spoke about. And we're going to see about... um, the different wars that uh, came around after this point. And so I'll again have to see exactly how long it will take, but in fact the next point that we get to after Egypt is the Hindu Valley. And Sitchin, in my mind, does amazing work at investigating and discovering um, where this culture came from, uh, why and in fact the deity who was uh, leading them and who was a huge influence on that culture. So we're going to get into all that then. Uh, The deity in fact was uh, Inanna, uh, Ishtar for those who uh, recognize. Ah, and you know what? Okay, before I finish, I would just like to mention one thing. Uh, (laughs) I... My chat isn't really working, so I'm not sure if I can uh, scroll back. But somebody mentioned the linguistics. I can't remember who it was. One moment, one moment. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. I was been completely away from chat for the whole time. Thank you all so much for your excellent contributions, all the uh, Sumerian pictures, etc. Um, whoever it was who mentioned the, some, the linguistics, thank you very much. So... Sitchin mentions many of the uh, Greek names and indeed um, the Hindu names. Uh, Asura, Ashura, is uh, a very, very similar name to the Assyrian uh, races, um, culture, or Ashur, who was the uh, deity, the one of the Babylonian deities. And so another little uh, tidbit that he has is in fact the word Titan, Now, the word Titan um, is a very confusing word as it is, and uh, Sitchin mentions, I haven't researched this thoroughly, but he says that we don't really have a meaning of the word uh, Titan. But if, as he suggests, the Titan mythology is actually based on the Sumerian origin, then perhaps the god's names was a... the god's name was a Sumerian name. Uh, Titan, as it is uh, written in English, as it were, can be uh, syllabized <laughs> into the Sumerian with the T-Ta-An, right? Ta-Ti-Ta-An. And that would literally mean those who in heaven live. So isn't that interesting that the... Uh, definition of the gods who came before the Olympians, before the gods who settled near Greece, was in Sumerian, uh, those who in heaven, those who from the sky come, those who in heaven live. Uh, Yes, etymology, exactly. I'm so glad to find uh, people uh, who share this passion, because in my mind at least, the etymology really is a crucial part 
um, of the understanding and of the ability to investigate. Because if we only base ourselves on the very, very, very few fragments that we can find of stories and, you know, this part is etched off, etc., etc., with the etymology, it's a lot easier, I think, or not easier, but a lot um, more precise to look through and to be able to see the evolution of the word throughout time and tracing it back, especially when you know a language, when you know it well enough, um, you can recognize more easily the additions because they stand out. And in fact, all of our language we, we know are an amalgamy and they've been influenced by the languages around but still we have these very large groupings of lots and lots and lots of languages that came out of X, um, but they all share this common ground. And then you have these languages that sort of defy all of those pre-existing uh, notions and semantics, and it becomes very difficult to explain how an entire language could spring up uh, seemingly out of nowhere. So, yes, I'm very uh, pleased that you joined me for this etymological tale. Uh, and, I, and I will be happy to keep bringing more of these examples, as obviously Sitchin does. And I would encourage you, especially if you are um, whatever your native language is, that's usually the language that we see the least because it's so natural. Um, I uh, now that we're in Portugal learning Portuguese I'm sort of talking with the people uh, some of them who can uh, speak English as well and keep asking them all these questions why is it like this and how come the words and those that and so often the Portuguese don't know or, or not don't know haven't noticed these similarities this link between the words these you know little connections that we make so it's so wonderful to uh, to be part of uh, a community uh, that appreciate the uh, honesty that can be found in uh, etymology. Okay, thank you very much. That was quite enough of my rambling about etymology. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here, Gabriel. Um, pleased to have you as a member of the audience. And thank you all for listening. Crimson Clad, thank you so much for joining. And Mariano, I don't believe I've seen you here before, but thank you very much. If if I did, then I apologize. Alien Honey, as usual, of course, and Rondon. Uh, thank you very, very much. Is there a show afterwards uh, today? Let's see in chat. We'll find out. I always try to remember, but not always uh, manage to. Um, ah, and of course, this week, I'm afraid I'm not going to have uh, the outro, or as I didn't have the intro, because all of my files have disappeared. So I hope... I'll be able to retrieve them somehow uh, for next week. But for now, you're going to have to leave with the sound of my uh, soothing voice, as it were. Ah, okay, so there's no show today. Oh, why not? I, uh... Ah, okay. Fearless. Oh, it's uh, straight after. I saw Fearless was here before, but now I can't find it anywhere. Um, oh, Mariano, thank you for the pictures what's the uh what is the one the one in the middle i don't recognize it i think the top and the bottom if i'm not mistaken are from the uh rock opera the portuguese the brazilian rock opera uh, that i mentioned before worth the watch in my mind at least but uh i don't recognize the picture in the middle if you can see in chat oh sorry anyway 
So is there is there a show in? Oh, there is Crim in two hours. Ah, I see. You were talking about uh, uh, Fearless. Sorry, because Fearless is now gone. Okay, so what's Fearless's uh, show? Yeah, I like the middle one's style, but I can't. Uh, I can't seem to place it anywhere. It's uh, who Mariano, right? Yeah, where is that? Uh, what is that from? It looks like a, a show. It doesn't look like a static picture but i've no idea anyway the uh, okay <laughs> we're excellent the anunnaki are due to return to earth to fix what they had dirtied our jack dna in order to accelerate a spiritual awakening of the evolution of human consciousness uh ah that's the source thank you um it's oh i can't wait i'll be honest with you guys i think sitchin it's kind of like um studying a new subject as it was you have to get through the basics you have to get through the fundamentals and they are usually more boring or i should say less interesting but they're sort of necessary and so in my mind sitchin is the basics the linguistics the fundamentals and then once we that have out once we have that out of the way we'll be able to fly with the really interesting stuff so thank you very much for watching for sorry for listening for joining me I've been Olev. I hope you enjoyed it and have a wonderful week.